This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Jordan hits one to center field. He smoked that one as well. Isbell back. That ball's gone. Home run. Jordan Alvarez to straightaway central. And the Astros lead 7-0. Oh, my goodness. This ball is absolutely torched down the right field line. Home run for Jordan Alvarez. A triple, a single, and now a long home run for an Astros 4-2 lead. There's a line drive, base hit into the right field corner. Altuve will score. Brantley will score. Bregman heading to third. He'll be held up. A two-RBI double for the hottest hitter on the planet, Jordan Alvarez. This has been a good week for Jordan Alvarez as far as racking up hits, and that bank account's going to change a little bit, too. You think? Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, June 16th. We're going to talk about a few all-time-ish records that are in progress. Most of them won't happen, but hey, maybe one will. We are going to talk about the Braves, who are absolutely on fire, 14 wins in a row. The Astros, who have already clinched the American League West. I'm sorry, it's true. And we're going to talk about the MLB Draft Combine, which is a cool new interesting thing. Then Matt and I will each pick a couple of guys that you should know more about. Matt, I wanted to start with what I realized today was an anniversary uh, of like a notable-ish baseball moment, but like a personally good memory for me, which I'm sure I probably talked about during pandemic podcast season. 25 years ago today, 1997, June 16th, was the very first Mets-Yankees interleague baseball game, uh, which I attended, and uh, it was uh, the Mets won 6 nothing. So that was 25 years ago, which makes me feel absolutely ancient. So I went with my uncle and I texted him this morning. I was like, hey, 25 years ago. Here's his response. I don't remember being there. <laughs> great pitching by question mark, question mark, question mark. He wasn't great, but he pitched well that day, which is 100%, 100% true. Do you have any idea who that pitcher was for the Mets who threw a complete game shutout? Dave Malicki. Come on, that's easy. Dave Malicki. I don't know. I thought it was a good, um, it was a good like scouting report. Great pitching by question mark, who wasn't great, but pitched well I, that day. I, I thought which you, is like the best way to define Dave Malicki. I thought your uncle was a, a big Mets fan. I'm disappointed because I feel like my, Dave Malicki, because of this game and because of the Mets' little brother complex, the fact that and Mets fans' little brother complex, he is like he Dave Malicki has like a, a place in Mets lore because first ever interleague game, the Mets could always say they won it. They shut out the Yankees. I'm pretty sure he, like, scattered, like, nine hits over eight innings or some such. Um, exactly nine hits. Very good. <laughs> hey, 25 years ago is a long time. My uncle is 71 now. He was 46 when he took 15-year-old me uh, to that game. Now I feel old, older. Uh, there's a couple of, like, all-time records in progress that are happening that I want to talk about. Like, I know it's June 16th. A lot of these won't sustain, and that's fine. But I think they're interesting. The first one is... Jordan Alvarez has the StatCast era hard hit record. Nobody since StatCast has been tracking in 2015 has a better hard hit rate than 64%, which is what he's at now, just a touch above Aaron Judge also of this year, uh, Fernando Tatis of 2020. He's also got the highest hard hit per swing rate. I tweeted before the season that he was a top, I can't remember if I said five or 10, but maybe I said five, I don't remember, but I said he was a top 10 hitter in baseball right now. And I got a lot of pushback on it. And now I think I maybe underestimated him. He might be a top two hitter in baseball. He is, I know he's slow. I know he's not a great outfielder or whatever. He is the perfect hitter in my book. We're going to talk about the Astros a lot more. Uh, is he top two? Is it like Trout and then him and now then Juan Soto? Um, I mean, I doesn't Judge have to be in that conversation too at this point? I'm trying to think of who else. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. There's, there's a few other guys that at least come to mind that I feel like are in the conversation, but I think Jordan Alvarez, as he's performing right now, and as you said, we'll talk more about the Astros later, um, he's about as as good as anyone at, at this moment. We should we should say whether um, 
we think the records will actually happen. I'm going yes on this one. I think he will set the StatCast era hard hit. Record. And, to, and to be clear, for people who are not familiar, we're only going back to 2015 on this. Of course, we yes. also are talking about a baseline of batted balls of 95 miles per hour or above, and I'm certain that guys in like the 80s and 90s were not hitting the ball 95 miles an hour and above more regularly. So in terms of like our current definition of hard hit rate – probably is the all-time record. Um, but, I mean, Judge is right there with him this year, so uh, it seems like that will be said. I'll also caveat that, you know, coming into this year, the the leader was Fernando Testis Jr. in the pandemic-shortened 2020 season. So I think really, if we want to go, like, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, probably the record is Aaron Judge in 2019 at 58.4%. Nah, who wants to be honest with ourselves? Let's, <laughs> we, um, you may remember one of the earliest StatCast metrics we had was pop time, right? How fast does a catcher get the ball down to second base or third base on a steal attempt? And then for reasons I just deeply don't care to go into, it had not been publicly active for the last couple of years. Well, last week we put it back up. There is now a StatCast pop time leaderboards dating back to 2015. And when we put them back up, I was very excited to see what we had missed over the last two years. And it turns out, JT Oramuto is basically the John Carlos Stanton of pop time. He is running a 1.82, that's seconds, 1.82 seconds on stolen base attempts at second base. That is the best of this year. It is the best of any year. He has actually been the best for the last one, two, three, four, five years in a row, including this year. And these things are in such like tiny little fractions of a second that his 1.82 is topping his 1.83 last year. Like the best guys are always in 1.8. One nine. Remember that the next time you hear some dad coach tweet that his 15-year-old is popping one sevens, <laughs> which kind of happens a lot. Um, I'm comfortable saying he will have the best pop time again. I don't know if I'm going to say he's going to break the record because he's breaking it right now by one one hundredth of a second, which is like such a small thing. <laughs> you know, your point about like, you know, the baseball dads. I mean, because the thing is, if any... If, for those who have never been to like a, one of these like high school showcase events, what happens is they basically do a pop time drill where the co- the the scouts will put out their stopwatches and watch them. So the kids go behind the plate knowing full well I am going to be throwing to second base. So they're basically in like a you know forty percent crouch, maybe not a full crouch, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they know it's going to be like a chest high, not even a fastball, a chest high like you know. 70-mile-an-hour throw right at their chest. With no swing. With no swing, and they know they're going to do it, as opposed to, like, being in a full crouch, maybe having to deal with a breaking ball, maybe having to deal with a swing. So, like, yes, probably in in that controlled environment, there are some of these, like, high school kids who can do a 1-7-something, but it's not really apples to apples. It's not even, like, apples to, I don't even know, to pears. It's something way, not even, way, way farther apart than that. Yeah, he's going to finish number one. He's not going to break the record. As a quick aside here, when we published these again last week, all of the uh, Blue Jays sickos on Twitter went down and immediately put the minimum required to one just so they could see where Gabriel Moreno ranked. And it was awesome. Like, he looks like he's already going to be fantastic at that. And I, I say Blue Jays sickos with love. <laughs> well, and, also, great. and also your point about Riamuto being sort of, I think he was, was Stanton the comp you did, you made? Yes. <laughs> For this year, just to give some context, Riamuto's won at 1.82 and then there's a huge drop until Sean Murphy, who's number two at 1.89. So, like, it's like, it's, you know, yeah, 0.07 seconds. But, like, when you consider everyone else going down the leaderboard is, like, 0.1 seconds below the, the person before them or tied with the person above them, like, the gap between one and two is enormous. Until Marina qualifies. I think that's what's going to happen here. All right, these records in progress are not all going to be StatCast records. Some of these are exceptionally dumb, and that's why I'm really excited about these next two here. Uh, The Texas Rangers, they have, they're not quite there yet, but they're very close to having the worst team caught stealing rate on record uh, since integration in 1947. They have allowed 51 stolen bases. They have had only six caught stealings. That means they have allowed an 89% success rate. Uh, The previous record would be the 2007 San Diego Padres, who allowed a 90% success rate in a completely different baseball universe, 189 steals and 20 caught stealings. Uh, Hilariously, the Rangers on offense are actually very good base runners. They lead the majors in steals. They have the most steals. They have the most base running runs, which is like a more advanced base running metric. When they're on the bases, they're great. When they're trying to prevent anyone from stealing, they are terrible. Jonah Heim has allowed 28 steals and allowed and gotten only three of them. I mean, Sam Huff, 13 steals against, has caught only one. Mitch Garver has been terrible. They have all been terrible. And this is 
this is the next thing I want to get to, not like today on this show, but like over the next couple months is uh, we, I want to work on some metrics that tell me, are all these three guys terrible or are their pitchers just putting them in the absolute worst spots? I feel like it's both. Uh, uh, yeah, but the fact that all three of them are basically telling the same story leads me to believe that there's the Rangers pitchers, you know, I'm going <laughs> to... Rangers pitchers probably have a lot to do with this, and that's you know one of those things that we could probably dig in a little bit deeper on because we do have some data on time from um, from the rubber to the to, to the plate. Because the fact that all three of them are basically the exact same number and it's a really bad number is just an indication that it, this goes beyond just their catchers being bad at throwing a second base. And I, I feel I feel for the poor catchers because when stolen base happens, stolen bases happen. They 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 get the blame, and it's really. I don't even know if it's 50-50. It might even be more on the pitcher sometimes, or a lot of the time more on the pitcher. So I'm going to I'm gonna give them a little bit, of, cut them a little bit of slack right here. Yeah, we're, we're going to find out. On the other side, the, the White Sox have the integration era best stolen base success rate on record. They have a 94% stolen base uh, rate, 31 successful, only two caught stealing. Now there's a bit of a catch here. Only three guys try to steal on this team. <laughs> Luis Robert is 11 of 12. Tim Anderson, 8 for 8. Adam Engel was seven for eight. And then there's a bunch of guys who have one stolen base that they were successful on. Uh, the next best full season is the 2007 Phillies, like the Jimmy Rollins Phillies. What I think this tells me is... That was the Chase... I, I think it was the Chase Utley. I mean, Chase Utley was like the... the, the One of the like... Well, not stolen bases. He was an... I didn't call it the... Incredibly, no, not that year. incredibly efficient stolen base... Stolen at stolen bases, Chase Utley. Uh, I, I... In his, in his, in his peak... The, the top stolen base guys that you were Jimmy Rollins, Shane Victorino, and Michael Bourne. And the longer I stretch out this sentence, the quicker baseball reference will <laughs> well, load. So I, fair, I think we're both kind of nine, right. Nine stolen bases that year. Yes, nine. but in 2009, just two years later, he was 23 for 23. So my memory is not crazy. He was incredibly efficient as a base stealer. It just so happens in 2007, uh-huh. I was off by a couple of years in terms of— He was nine for ten at least. He was helping the cause. He was helping the cause. I think this year's White Sox are a microcosm of baseball as a whole in that obviously stolen base attempts are down, uh, which Anthony Kastrovinch just wrote about for our site. But they're a little smarter about like who should be going and when. You know, you're not just going for the sake of going. You are going because you know the pitcher's time or you have a pretty good idea of you should never try because it's not worth it. Right. Like I think the White Sox are maybe just the most extreme version of this. For sure. And that's, I mean, exactly. You know, the Castrovins wrote a piece looking at sort of the, how the pitch clock in the minors, which also has a, like a, a limits on throws to first base a component linked into it. Because otherwise, what, what, otherwise pitchers would just step off and there would be no penalty for violating the pitch clock. You could just step off and reset it. Um, but by virtue of pitchers being limited in how often they could throw to first base, the hope is to not, is to increase, Steal attempts because that's actually what's you know baseball's base stealing has actually gotten more efficient to Mike's point. Um, it's just that they're just trying base stealers are trying to steal a lot less often because you know teams drill the math into them like hey if you're not successful X percent of the time it's not worth it and obviously the White Sox have been efficient but they've been wildly inefficient in other aspects of the game. Speaking of which, the White Sox. They currently have the worst ever, now ever in this case only goes back to 1974, the worst ever left-handed hitting <laughs> in baseball. If you look at OPS, White Sox left-handed hitters are hitting 190, 245, 273. That is a 519 OPS. It's actually improved because I looked this up like three days ago and it was below 500 at that point. So it's getting better. Uh, this is because Yasmani Grandal has been, you know, switch hitter, has not had a good year. Same for Yohan Moncada. Gavin Sheets didn't do much. Larrier Garcia, Liuri Garcia, who has somehow been there for 10 years and has two more remaining guaranteed years on his contract, which blew my mind, um, and Enrique McGuire, those are the left-handed hitters. It's still early, early enough that if you look at the top five, there are three teams from this year on it, the Tigers, who we'll get to in a second, and also the A's, and one 2020 pandemic team. The previous full season, I don't want to say record because it's a bad thing, the 1981 Minnesota Twins who I can guarantee you I cannot name a left-handed hitter from because I did not look it up. I don't imagine anyone that member rule. I mean, the, the thing is that the White Sox are on like a whole other level right here, right? It's like, it's they're they're at 519 and, you know, the, the 81 Twins were at 603. Of course, we still don't even have, we've gotten to top five and I'm looking at this list and we have to do d- deeper dive, Mike. There's no team here from a 162-game season because even the 1981 was a strike was a strike-shortened season. So there's... I don't even, we're going to have to find out what the actual record is because I think the White Sox are almost certainly going to smash it. 
1981 a strike shortened season or a strike interrupted season? Uh, no, you're right. Yeah, no, you're right. You got me there. Yeah, you're right. I should look up the 162-game record because I don't actually know. Uh, the Tigers were on that list. This one's a sad one. They are working on the integration area. Worst ever first half OPS. <laughs> 596 OPS. The previous, uh, you know, guy, teams were worse than them. The second year expansion, 1963 Houston Colt 45s. The second year expansion, 1963 New York Mets. And the year of the pitcher, 1968 Chicago White Sox. I don't think the Tigers are going to get there because they are... 25 points or so ahead of the uh, 63 Houston Colt 45s. And I guess I could have adjusted this for a year because that was like lower offensive environment and all that. But they, um, here's a question for you. And I hope you don't have this up. They can look it up. There are two Tiger hitters who are average or better in at least 100 plate appearances. Do you know who they are? Um, You're not going to get them. Robbie Grossman? Nope. Not even close. Miguel Cabrera, who oh, has a 104 OPS plus. I mean, there is nobody. Well, that's not true. He, he doesn't even have a 700 OPS. Um, Harold Castro has, like, been surprisingly decent. But you look up and down the lineup, like, Spencer Torkelson has not clicked at all. Javier Baez, like, we both had a lot of, could say, concerns about that contract. That's looked like a mess so far. And even guys you thought would be decent, like you said, Robbie Grossman. Uh, Heimer Candelario, I've always liked him. No, nobody is hitting there. And I, I, we all kind of thought they were maybe a team on the rise, and Scooble's been fantastic, but now Mize is injured, the pitching looks terrible, Rodriguez has had to step away from the team for personal matters. Where is this going to land? I don't know. It's I gotta say, I'm pretty bummed about Javi Baez, because I think that, like, I wish there were more players like Javi Baez, like, they're, you know, guys who sort of, when they're at their best, can succeed in different ways, and sort of just adds, he adds an excitement, he sort of has his own thing. And I understand his flaws as a player, and they've manifested themselves many times in different ways over the years, mainly that he just, like, cannot control the strike zone at all. But he's managed to put together a few good enough seasons that, like, you know, he could be a a productive player while also bringing that that wow factor. But, man, it is – it's – it's bad. Um, this is about as like it's it's you know he's got a 520 OPS, a 232 OBP. It's pretty disappointing. Hopefully, there's a little bit of rebound there. If not, it almost you almost hope he gets it out of that, as if this is possible. I like, gets it out of his, his system this year. Maybe he can come back next year and be a little bit of like the Javi Baez we've seen before because this is like the worst version of Javi Baez we've ever seen, and the team has been you know a, a disappointment to say the least. It's possible we see um, Riley Green, who's like one of the top prospects in baseball, up soon. He's been playing well in the minors, and um, that would at least give Tigers fans something else to uh, to get excited about. Because right now, what we're seeing on the field is not great. They they used they brought a position player into pitch in the in the seventh inning yesterday, which is just. <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty grim. It was. Did it was Harold Castro actually, and then uh, did I say they used three three position yeah, players to pitch exactly? Um, which was like you know, I I, forget, I saw like some context everywhere somewhere, but it's for a nine inning game. It's pretty rare to see to see that happen. And they used uh, oh Kobe Clemens, Kobe. Rogers kid is one exactly. of them, right? <laughs> so it's it's been it's been bad in Detroit, and uh, I've always been a big fan of Riley Green. So I hope when he does come up, he can. Um, hit the ground running because uh, also Torkelson's been been a bit a big disappointment. There was the feeling that he'd be, hey, this guy's going to be, you know, a good hitter from day one, number one overall pick, big college program, great numbers in the minors, and it just hasn't happened that way. All right, let's end on two more a little uh, op- more optimistic ones. Edwin Diaz is nearing the single season strikeout rate record. He has a 48% strikeout rate, 17 per nine. That's 48 strikeouts in 25 and a third innings. Right now, he rates seventh uh, for pitchers who have had at least 25 innings in a season, as he has. But pretty soon, we're going to unqualify some of those guys because they'll have more innings than Devin Williams did in 2020 and Carter Capps in 2015. And wow, James Karinchek, I remember him in 2020. And he'll be fourth best behind uh, Earldis Chapman and two seasons from Craig Kimbrell. So Aroldis Chapman had a 52% rate. Edward Diaz is not that far behind. And what's interesting to me about him is he's actually improving. Like he's changing the way he's pitched for the first time ever. He is throwing sliders more than fastballs. At the same time, he's averaging 99 miles an hour on his four-seamer, but he's throwing sliders 54% of the time, fastballs 46% of the time. He had a couple of games, I think it was on the West Coast trip, maybe when they were playing the Dodgers, where he looked 
absolutely unbelievable. And I ask you as a noted Mets aficionado, do Mets fans actually like him now? I know the first year was rough. Uh, he's been so good for the last couple of years, especially because Kelnick hasn't hit it all for the Mariners. I think at this point, it's changed. The, the tune has changed a little bit because he has, as you said, he's been so good this year. Did you see the game the other night when they brought him in in the eighth against Trout with oh, the yeah. tying run on base, yes. and he just that was blew one past Trout, and then he threw one 102 past Jared Walsh to end the inning, and then he struck out. He faced five. He he got five outs. I think there might have been one walk mixed in. Five outs, five strikeouts, including Trout with with, with the tying run on base. Um, he's been pretty electric. I think also the introduction of his walk up music last year might have also his entrance music. <laughs> if you haven't heard Andrew Diaz's entrance music, it's phenomenal. I think that also might have won over um, some some. They've got you, Mister and Mrs. Met, playing the fake trumpets on top of the dugouts. It's like a it's a scene. I, I can see our producer Alex smiling here because he's got an idea for musical cues now that can go in behind. <laughs> um, here's our last one. This is one that's pretty fun to me. The Yankees will have the fastest ever. I'll qualify ever in a second. Fastball velocity. Now, usually when we do fastballs, we look at four seamers, sinkers, and cutters. I kind of cut out cutters here for uh, this look because sometimes those are a change of pace pitch, and I just want like pure heat. So if you just look at four seamers and sinkers, they have an average, an average of 95.1 miles an hour. If pitch tracking goes back to 2008, this would be the fastest on record. I'm pretty comfortable in saying this would be the fastest ever. Do not tell me that the 1964 Dodgers threw this hard. Do not tell me that the 1922 (laughs) Washington Senators threw this hard. They didn't. They didn't. But if you look at the Yankees, it could actually be better because you look at some of their best pitchers. Lester Cortez doesn't throw that hard. Jordan Montgomery doesn't throw that hard. This is Garrett Cole, uh, Clay Holmes, Raldis Chapman, like Michael King, their bullpen throws quite hard. Uh, if you look at all of their fastballs, 26% of them are at 97 miles an hour or more. So I went back to the very first year we have tracking for 2008. In that year, 23 teams didn't even have 5% of their fastballs 97 or more. The Yankees are at 26%. Uh, the lowest team, by the way, that first year pitch effects. The Phillies had 30 fastballs out of more than 12,000 fastballs at 97 miles an hour, all from Brad Lidge and, and Ryan And Benz. they won the World Series. And they won the World Series that year. And, and they won the World Series that year. I mean, they had 75-year-old Jamie Moore on that team, so that was always going to bring them down. But for a team to average 95, I mean, when we were kids, and I know I've already intro this by pointing out how old we both are uh, a pitcher hitting 95 it was like a big deal it's like wow that guy 95 and now it's like oh this guy honestly here's a great example because the fact that i can't remember his name proves the point the marlins called up this guy the other day who i'd never heard of he started throwing 100 and they dfa'd him the next day and that's exactly the point like 100 doesn't even mean anything anymore so 95 that used to be such a big deal and now it's like oh yeah we average 95 whatever I brought up, you mentioned Clay Holmes. I brought him up as like, you know, my guy a couple weeks ago, sort of expecting some regression at some point because, you know, even even Michael King, who at the beginning of the season was like the Yankees it guy out of the bullpen, has struggled a little bit. He's, he's still been very good, but he had a little rough patch there. But Clay Holmes continues to just absolutely annihilate hitters. He's now thrown 30 and two-thirds innings. He has a .29 ERA, an 83% ground ball rate. He's working on one of the the best relief seasons ever. It's crazy how good he is. Like he seemingly pitches in like every game and has not waned all season. It's it's pretty wild. I'm gonna say something sacrilegious. I think I I saw his name uh, on a leaderboard, like a Yankee leaderboard, with, with some Mariano Rivera seasons or whatever. And I understand the difference is Rivera did this for like 15 years, and obviously Holmes has not, will not, and that's fine. But in terms of pure stuff, I take Holmes over Mariano Rivera. Like, the, what he's doing with, like, 99-mile-an-hour sinkers that move, uh, I mean, that's that. I don't know how you hit that. I mean, you don't. I guess that's the answer is you, you literally cannot because nobody has. <laughs> All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Adventures podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers, and we will move into our three batter minimum, where we pick three interesting topics of the week. And there's really just nowhere else we could start other than the fact that the Atlanta Braves have won 14 games in a row, maybe even more by the time you hear this. Uh, Their streak is the fifth in the majors of at least 14 games since 2009. Now, they're really impressive, and I want to get to all the very good things about them. I do have to be an enormous buzzkill to start here. The entire win streak has come against Arizona, Colorado, Oakland, Pittsburgh, and Washington. They have a losing record against winning teams. They are 25-13 and 13 against losing teams. They are 12-14 and 14 against winning teams. I don't want to say this is because of that, because I think there's some real, like, actual improvements that are happening here. Obviously, Ronald Acuna Jr. is back and killing it, and they've got some new faces and new names. But I think it's fair to start there. They're not exactly sweeping the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Mets, are they? No, but I'll make two counterpoints to that. Um, one of which is that like these aren't just wins; they're absolutely dominating these teams. They've outscored them 101 to 41, a plus 60 during that streak, winning at each game by an average of 4.3 runs per game. Um, the second of which is that they. Those Colorado games, they swept a four-game series in Colorado, which is really hard to do and is not something that happens often. So, like, I get that part, and I see people, like, you know, pointing out the schedule, and it's reasonable to do so. But, like, the combination of the dominance and sweeping a four-game series in Colorado, I think, like, sort of should should add a fair amount of shine to the to the to the um, the the winning streak. I will say, like, on that note, it does feel like, and this might just be anecdotal. It does feel like there's lately, and maybe it's I'm thinking about that Tigers game yesterday where they brought a, a pitcher in to pitch in this a position player to pitch in the seventh inning. It does feel like the bad teams have been really bad, and that there's been a, a large number of non-competitive games. Like the Padres beat the Cubs by like 14 runs last night. The Cubs have lost nine of ten. The Pirates have lost nine of ten. The A's have lost nine of ten. It just feels like this is like happening every night where we're seeing just like the good teams just like steamroll the bad teams and they're kind of in sometimes a non-competitive way. Yeah, it's it's not great. What, what the Braves have done, I think, is interesting because it's a kind of a different Braves team than we've seen the last couple of years. Like we knew that was going to be the case because Freddie Freeman's not there, obviously. Uh, and we should point out too that Ozzie Albies broke his foot or at least a bone in his foot and he's going to be out for a while. But when you look at what's happened over the last couple of weeks, like, yeah, there's familiar names like, you know, Acuna's back and he's been great. Uh, Swanson and Riley have been red hot and Max Fried's been really good. But there's a lot of new names there, right? Like William Contreras, that's, you know, the brother of Wilson Contreras has been really good. My guy, Michael Harris, who I talked about, I think last week has started to hit. He's been very good. Um, Kyle Wright, who I think was my guy like the third week of the season. He was my, uh, I think he was my guy. He's your guy. Well, I wrote about him. Anyway, he's been very good. Uh, and then Spencer Strider, who moved from the bullpen to the rotation, he's been fantastic. Meanwhile, Charlie Morton hasn't been very good at all. Ian Anderson hasn't been very good at all. And the number one thing I was thinking about coming into the season was they rode that bullpen so hard last year, you know, the night shift to a World Series. Like, what would the effects be? And it, it's kind of like come true. Like Tyler Matzik's been out for more than a month with a shoulder shoulder injury. Uh, Will Smith has his lowest strikeout rate and highest walk rate in five years. Luke Jackson hurt his elbow. He's out for the year. I should point out A.J. Minter has been fantastic. Right? 101 ERA, uh, 36 strikeouts and four walks. And they got Kenley Jansen, who's been very good as well. But it, it's, you know, it's a post-Freeman world and it's a post-those-guys-in-the-bullpen world with the exception of Minter. And they, you know, even last year, they didn't have Acuna, you know, now they do. Ozzie Albies is a loss, but wasn't really playing that great this year. It, it's really fascinating to me to see, like, how different this team already is from the team that won the World Series last year, and they're playing so well. The one guy that jumps out to me is is who you mentioned who pitched last night is Spencer Strider. It's interesting to see a team like the Braves sort of move a guy from the bullpen, especially like a, you know, uh, a young guy. I'm not sure if he still has rookie eligibility or not. Um, he pitched a little bit last year from the bullpen into the rotation during the season. And he's like a unique profile for a starting pitcher. He's 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 small and he's basically for right hand for a right hand starting pitcher, he's six feet tall, like a hundred and he's listed at one ninety five. He doesn't even look that. That's small for a right hand pitcher. And he's basically only throwing two pitches, a fastball, which he throws really hard, and a slider. But usually two pitch pitching right handed pitchers have a tough time. But, like, man, he's fun to watch. He actually kind of gives off – I get a little bit of, like, a Roy Oswalt vibe just in terms of, like, the power stuff, the slight build, and just the fact that he so um, comp- complements it with a, with a breaking ball like that. But um, 
he's he's interesting to me, and I'm the kind of the, one of the the one to watch because he's sort of been able to balance out some of Charlie Morton struggling as much as much as he has. So he he does still have rookie eligibility. The other thing is I'm trying to figure out the last time anyone involved in an April trade was notable for any reason whatsoever. 38-year-old Jesse Chavez, who I think is in his third tour of duty with the Braves, they got him in mid-April for Sean Newcomb. He has 24 strikeouts and three walks. Jesse Chavez, which is mind-blowing to me. Like, I hope that guy pitches forever. He's so fun. All right, our second topic. The Houston Astros have already won the West. Breaking news. It's over. Calling it. It's done. It's over. They lead the West by nine and a half games over, wait for it, Texas. Matt and I were in a meeting yesterday, and he said, hey, does anybody here know who's second in the American League West? And it turned out it was Texas, and I looked it up. It's true. Uh, the Angels are 10 and a half games out. Seattle is 11 and a half games out. I don't think the Astros are the best team in baseball. I don't think anybody does, but they have the highest odds of winning their division at Fangrass, 98%, because they play in this division. Obviously, the Mets have a lot of competition. The Yankees have a lot of competition. The Dodgers have a lot of competition. I'm calling it right now. There is a 100% chance the Astros are winning this division. It will be their fifth straight full season division title. And the one year they didn't, the partial season of 2020, they still got to the American League Championship Series. Now, I think Matt and I, you were both, we were both in agreement that they were maybe being overlooked entering the year. I think we were both pretty high on this team. What is kind of cool is if you look at their, their lineup, no one is really overperforming expectations. I'll say Jeremy Pena a little bit was better than could be expected, and he's hurt now. So there's that. But when you look at the other guys, uh, I would say there's a couple guys having like typically good seasons, like Brantley, Altuve, and Tucker are having good years, but sort of like the flavor of good years you'd expect. We already talked about Jordan Alvarez might be the best hitter in baseball. And then Alex Bregman hasn't been that good. Yuli Gurriel's been terrible. The catchers don't hit. Uh, Jose Siri's been very good defensively, but he's not hitting in center field. This team is killing it, and there's still a lot of weaknesses that could easily be improved upon. Like, I think that's what makes them scary here. Yeah I, yeah, I think you said it. I mean, Payne is the only guy. I mean, he's also really exceeding expectations, though he's cooled off a little bit. Um, but it's just, it's there's still such a well-rounded team. I, I also, I've started to feel like, and I, I understand why this has happened because of, you know, the whole sign-stealing thing. I sort of feel like Jose Altuve has kind of become underrated in baseball because, like, he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, he's got a 151 yes. weighted runs created plus, and he just keeps plugging away and doing it. And it's like... No one really wants to give him credit for it, but um, it's pretty incredible that the, that he's still putting up these numbers, given like you know his you know his 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 size makes him like such an outlier that it's so hard to comp him to anyone else in baseball history. But as like a thirty two year old you know five foot six second baseman having a you know one fifty weight runs created plus on a first place team is pretty remarkable. Um, so. It will be interesting to see what kind of tweaks they make because they don't really need to make any tweaks to make to win the division, but they might need to have some depth to sort of get through the playoffs. And so you you wonder what 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 might be done for them. We talked about some people talk about catcher for them because they basically get nothing on offense from catcher, but like clearly they 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 trust Martin Maldonado to run the game, and he they they get the most out of their pitchers, and he obviously has a role in that, and they feel like they could probably punt offense from that spot knowing that they have the catcher of that caliber. Yeah, I, even if you get a catcher, you don't take Maldonado's job away. You probably take Jason Castro's job away, you know, because then you have more catching depth. They've really been such a well-rounded team because if you look at outs above average, the stack has defensive metrics. They are second in baseball behind San Diego, so they have the second-best defense, the fifth-best offense by Witter and Creative Plus, and the third-best pitching by ERA, which is like, hey, that's, that's just a well-rounded team. And I know Justin Verlander's not going to sustain a 194 ERA all year long. He's still Justin Verlander. He's still one of the greatest pitchers of his generation. And then I'm pretty sure we had this conversation. You don't know the names of these other guys in the rotation, but they're all really good. Like Christian Javier is really good. Uh, Luis Garcia is really good. Framber Valdez is very good. Jose Arquiti's not having a great year, but I actually like him a lot. Like They have a deep pitching staff, and you asked about a need. I don't know. A center fielder who can hit maybe a, a early farm or two. Yuli Gurriel hasn't been that good. I don't think they're going to dump him, but maybe a first base option. I could see it. And since we're talking about the Astros, I feel like we're obligated to talk about what happened yesterday. They were the first team in the history of baseball. <laughs> well, let's back up for a second. Have you ever heard of the phrase, an immaculate inning? It's nine pitches, nine strikes. 
and I am, I don't know, maybe I'm a buzzkill. I've never been that impressed by them. Like, it's kind of fun. It's fine. Give me three pitches. Get out of an inning in three pitches, and then I'll be impressed. Yesterday was the first day in the history of baseball. Two immaculate innings were thrown on the same day across the entire sport. Except it wasn't just that. They were thrown in the same game against the same three batters. <laughs> Luis Garcia and Phil Maton did it against Nate Lowe, Ezekiel Duran, and Brad Miller in the second and seventh inning of yesterday's game against Lowe. They clearly had a plan between the two of them. Six pitches, all fastballs up and in, six swings, no in-play contact. As I said, I'm not that impressed by immaculate innings, but that's kind of cool. <laughs> two in the same game against the same three dudes. Like that is imp- that, that will never happen again in the history of sports. That I mean, I think I had the same I have the same feeling. Like immaculate innings are one of those novelties, like, okay, cool. But like the the specificity of it happening against the same three guys in the same game, it's pretty wild. It is one of those things where you could say, like, it may happen again, but we will not be around to see it. How about that? It's not going to happen again in our lifetimes, or in your, or to you, you in you, the dear listener's lifetime. Uh, I don't. Let's see. I'm just trying to see real quick when they put. Oh, they don't play against each other. Okay. I was I was hoping Texas and Houston would play again today just to see if they would roll out those three guys in the same order <laughs> again, <laughs> like just to give it a shot. Um, but Texas is at Detroit, so I'm guessing there will not be any immaculate innings there. Our third topic, this is a brand new thing, uh, and I know, Matt, you're, you're excited to talk about this. The 2022 Major League Baseball Draft Combine is happening right now at Petco Park this, this week from the 14th to the 20th. 255 draft, draft prospects, including 137 from college, 118 from high school, and it's really kind of a, a first-ever sort of thing. You can see it on MLB Network, and you'll get a whole bunch of scouting reports and measurables from these guys. It's it's new, and it's interesting. It's going to be cool. Yeah, well, they, it did. It started last year, but this is a much bigger version yeah. of it. Last year, they did it at Cary, North Carolina, at the USA Baseball Complex. This year, it's at a major league ballpark. Um, there's just a lot more MLB Network. Today, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, is broadcasting um, a few hours of it today and a few hours again of it tomorrow. And, you know, it's... Obviously, trying to mimic some of what we ha- what, what what sports fans have seen with the NFL draft combine. Obviously, not going to be that big out of the gate, but you know, I think it's a it's a unique way to get a lot of the top prospects in one place. And there are some of the top prospects who are going to be there and um, participating and doing and doing live drills that fans can see for the first time. I think there's two names. There's actually three names that probably jump out. Um, the first name that jumps out is Tremar Johnson, who is a infielder, shortstop now, probably a second baseman in pro ball who's uh, plays for a high school in Atlanta. Um, he's currently ranked number four by MLB, Pipe, um, P- MLB Pipeline in the top 100 draft prospects, or top 200 draft prospects, I should say. And what stands out to me about Termar Johnson, I noticed this when I read his scouting report a few weeks ago, which is why I cannot wait to see him hit. It says, one scout gave him a double Hall of Famer comparison by calling him a combination of Wade Boggs' plate discipline and Vladimir Guerrero Sr.'s bat-to-bat skills. I mean, what? No pressure, dude. (laughs) I mean, usually, like, scouts are so tepid in, like, their comps. You know, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I could see him being, like, the next Steve Finley. You know, like, if all goes well, he could be, you know, the the next Glenn Hubbard. And, like, you know, so it's like (laughs) when you see this, you're just like, whoa, I got to see this kid. Um and so that's one name that jumps out, and he's probably going to be a top five pick in the draft. The other guy that's interesting, and this is sort of could be an interesting trend with the um, with the uh, with the combine, is a pitcher from Alabama, University of Alabama named Connor Prelip, a left-handed pitcher who had Tommy John surgery last May, and our own Jim Callis basically has has written that like he probably if he'd stayed healthy and sort of like continued on his trajectory, he would have had the potential to be the number one pick in this year's draft. He's currently ranked number 24th because he hasn't really pitched in a year, and he's only thrown in front of scouts once this year. So, like, tomorrow on MLB Network, if you're interested, you can watch this kid throw in front of scouts, and this will kind of be the test. It's going to be like, is this, is he going to be an, a top 10 pick? Is he going to be a 20th pick? Is he going to fall out? Like, So there's there's going to be a little, little bit of drama, at least within the scouting community, of what this kid does um, when he's on the mound. And the other part is is we're going to also – Get his full measurables, right? Because it's 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 a Petco Park. Their stat cast. We're going to get velocity. We're going to get pitch movement. We're going to get spin, and I think that's like a really interesting thing that is going to really change um, the way pitchers get scouted. And it already it already has changed the way pitchers get yeah, um, get scouted. You know, I'll give give an example. Is that you know Jim Callis wrote a piece about a switch pitcher um, <laughs> who pitched in the combine yesterday. They did like a. a not an inter-squad game, but they did like a, a game amongst some of the top high school prospects on Wednesday afternoon. 
And the story of the game was a, a pitcher named who's from Curacao but has moved to the United States, who's in high school, whose name is Gerangelo Sancha, um, who actually pitched in the Little League World Series in 2016. He's a natural lefty, but he basically learned to throw righty, and he actually might be a better a better pitcher from the right side. And I was reading Jim Callis' scouting report, and he says he worked with a with a 94 to 96 mile an hour fastball and an 80 mile an hour breaking ball with 2600 RPM from the right side and an 88 to 92 mile per hour heater and a 76 mile an hour breaker with 2400 RPM from the left side. So I was like, wow, that's pretty cool that we're just like already have that as part of the conversation of just like we're putting in curveball spin in our scouting reports, and it actually reminded me of a piece, not reminded because I read the piece yesterday, but it connected me to a piece that um, I saw in Baseball America uh, written by Kyle Glazer, where basically he went through some of like the most infamous draft kind of busts of the last 20 years, and he basically went to scouts and who scouted them and said, okay, like looking, what, looking back on what you know now, what do you think you got wrong? <clears throat> and I noticed for more than one pitcher, the scouts basically said, yeah, if we had had, like, spin and pitch movement data, we would probably would have seen the red flags. Specifically, there was one scout who talked about Mark Appel who said, we look back, we didn't have the data that we do now. I can say with a fairly high level of certainty that pitch, the pitch profiles, especially the fastball, did not play particularly great. He could overpower mediocre college players, but in pro ball, it catches up, you quick, catches up to you quickly. So, like, I think it's interesting that, like, we're now seeing the way this advanced data can change the way guys get scouted. And obviously, you know, there's many num- number of factors why pitchers might succeed or not succeed. And also, as as you like to tweet about all the time, pitchers are capable of reinventing themselves. So it's not like, oh, you had poor spin in college. You're not capable of changing your grip or changing your arm angle and discovering additional movement. But, you know, it's it's the, the, the depth that we can we can scout pitchers at is 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 so much greater than it used to be, and I'm curious to see if now like if the the miss rate quote unquote on on pitchers, especially college pitchers, shrinks. The guy I think about when it comes to that is Jeff Hoffman, who was the number nine overall pick a couple years ago. And I wouldn't say a miss, like he's made it to the bigs. He's been a big league pitcher, but not quite to the extent that you'd think because his fastball is kind of straight. And I think that you can hear that and say, well. This might hurt some guys because, you know, they're going to throw 98 but without good fastball shape and that's going to hurt their stock. I'm like, well, yeah, maybe, but maybe we won't miss the next Kyle Hendricks. You know, he's not like necessarily a spin guy. He's more of a command guy. But you know what I mean? Maybe we we find the guy who's throwing 92 um, but with like elite fastball rise who wouldn't have gotten a chance before and this helps pick them up. So I, I agree with you. I think that's pretty cool. The other thing I like is, you know, you look up and down the list here and I, I can't say I'm familiar with like most of these names or anything. Um, the number one, prospect on the pipeline board here is uh Andrew Jones's kid Drew Jones which you know makes sense like Andrew Jones came to prominence almost 30 years ago but the one that sticks with me is our number three prospect Jackson Holiday who is Matt Holiday's son Matt Holiday only retired like three years ago and I looked this up Matt Holiday is mm, more or less exactly your age like like a month off and I mean we both have little kids but none older than eight or so, I guess, which maybe is just more about like the shapes of our lives. But there's going to be Matt Holiday's kid. And that that makes me feel too old because he just played <laughs> not that long ago. Get used to it, Mike. Are you suggesting it? Time is linear and it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. Is that how it works? <laughs> cool. We'll be right back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast with our guys. We should talk about a little more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers, we always like to end our show with a pair of guys that we should be talking about a little bit more. My guy is Andres Jimenez of the Cleveland Guardians. You may remember him from such trades as Francisco Lindor got traded to the Mets. Oh my God. 
And that's true. He was traded uh, with two minor leaguers and a med Rosario for Carlos Carrasco and Francisco Lindor, and then promptly had a pretty unimpressive Cleveland debut. Remember, he came up with the Mets in 20 and got a lot of acclaim. He was very good. Last year, 218, 282, 351. Did not look so good, but remember, he's only 22. He's still not even 24 for another couple months, and he's doing really well this year. He's hitting 302, 337 on base, a 516 slugging. His hard hit rate has gone up each year. He's one of the fastest players in baseball, 95th percentile sprint speed, and he is tied for third best in outs above average. He's playing a little bit of shortstop, but mostly playing second base. And that is what's really interesting to me. You look at the two guys they got in this trade, Jimenez and Rosario, that's mostly the Cleveland middle infield right now. You throw in Jose Ramirez at third base, who's on a Hall of Fame trajectory, Josh Naylor and Owen Miller at first base, who are having pretty good years. Would you believe the Cleveland infield is actually good? Third best OPS in baseball, the best in the American League. This is a big part of why they're sticking around in the American League Central. Would you also believe, and this is just the most believable thing, the Cleveland outfield is bad. <laughs> it always is. Outfield plus DH, 28th best OPS. Fran Reyes has had a terrible year. Miles Straw hasn't hit. Oscar Mercado hasn't hit. Even Stephen Kwan, who had 10 hits in his first five games, has a 605 OPS ever since then in 161 plate appearances. Third percentile hard hit. I actually wonder if he's going to get sent down at some point. And when I look at the trade a year and a half later, the Menez and Rosario combined are basically equal on offense to what Lindor is doing this year. Much younger, obviously with much less of a contract. And it's cool to see that, you know, after his rough introduction, Jimenez looks like he's going to be a guy there for potentially a very long time to come. So I've, I've liked Jimenez. Like, so it, in 2020, the Mets were, they, they could mash, they, they could score runs, but there was terrible pitching because they had a ton of injuries. I think, I, think, I think Rick Porcello might have let them in starts, and he was just, he was very bad. A ton of injuries and terrible defense. And Jimenez was like this rookie who did all the things that no one else on the team could do. He was like extremely smooth in the field. Good base runner, stole some bases. Like he had like a he exuded like a baseball skill set and competence that no one else on the field had. So it was like, oh, like this kid's pretty exciting. This thing is like we don't have players like this. Like we like this guy. Now he hit well that year, but you could see it was like, or he hit reasonably well, but like his hard hit rate, as you noted, was well below average. So it seemed a little bit flukish. So I can't say I was entirely surprised they struggled last year, although he was kind of worse than I, I thought he would be. This year, the power has sort of kind of, you know, blown me away because it's, you know, it's not, it's an expected slugging of 530. So this is like, this is like real, real, real thunder in the bat. This is not just him using his speed to leg out extra bases, which sometimes you see some like speed guys with somewhat, somewhat inflated slugging percentages. Like, no, this guy um, is actually hitting the ball really hard. And he's he's really smooth in the field. I really like him as a player. I think it's pretty cool to see to see him do what he's doing. Yeah, I'm also very excited to have another round of what outfielder should Cleveland trade for at the <laughs> deadline. That will never end up happening. <laughs> Who do you got? Uh, my guy this week is Brendan Donovan of the Cardinals. And like as our colleague Andrew Simon has said, and I'll steal his line: like if you could concoct in a lab like a perfect Cardinals player to just like arrive who exists solely just to, like, annoy opponents, it would be Brennan Donovan because, like, the Cardinals have, like, a history going back for as long as I can remember of basically just, like, having guys like this appear out of nowhere who weren't even, like, high on prospect lists and instantly become, like, very good major league players. And there's usually a common thread to these players, and it's usually that, like, their players drafted, like, in rounds, like, 5 to 15, and they're out of Four year, you know, and they, and they played college college baseball because, like, the Cardinals, and this goes back to when Jeff Luna was there, and like, this is sort of known that they had sort of established they were at the cutting edge of figuring out a way to sort of create a data, like a, a database, like an, a analytical system, to, like that feeds in scouting reports and stats, and like find players with like potential to outperform what the, what, what scouts might see in them. And we saw that, I mean, like, there's the, the whole the list goes on and on, right? You've got guys like Matt Carpenter, who's probably the best example because he was, you know, like an all-star. Alan Craig, David Freeze, who, as it turns out, actually went to the same college, South Alabama, as Brendan Donovan. Brendan Donovan entered the year as the Cardinals' number 12 prospect, totally nondescript guy. They called him up because um, Paul DeJong was struggling at shortstops. Brendan Donovan is hitting... 341, 448, 465, good for a 166 
OPS plus. Now he only has one home run, so he's probably that maybe that's a li- he's a little bit over his skis right now. But he actually walks more than he strikes out, and he's in the 95th percentile for walk rate and and 96 92nd percentile for strikeout rate. So like you at least see someone who really controls the strike zone and plays an up the middle position, and you see like okay, this guy seems like he's a quality big leaguer and. He's exactly. I mean, he had a very good year at AAA last year, so you could see that like this is something that he was that, that was kind of that was kind of building. That like okay, there was the the makings of a uh, a solid big leaguer, and now he, he stepped in and like you know Paul DeJong was supposed to be a part of the team. He's back in the minors, and they haven't skipped a beat, and the Cardinals are back in first place because the Brewers can't score any runs. A sneaky NL Rookie of the Year case too, I think, because uh, Mackenzie Gore is probably the front runner, but most of the best rookies this year are in the American League, so he's got a shot there. I also wanted to point this out. He was born in Germany. He already has the ninth highest total wins above replacement for any German-born player now. Like like a lot of these players, he was born there just because his father was stationed there uh, as a member of the military. He's not actually German. But the whole point of bringing this up is because I wanted to be able to say the name of the number two most war by any German-born player. He was the first German-born player, Pretzels Getzian, who was born in uh, 1864 and debuted in 1884. And I was hoping like pretzels wasn't going to be some sort of derogatory nickname for Germans that was used in the 19th century. But it appears it was uh, because of his puzzling twisters, which I believe means his curveball. He had lots of curves in his curveball. So now I got to say pretzels gets you. And I'm pretty sure number one on that list is Glenn Hubbard because he was at front of mind. Wow. Because he was at the front of my mind. That's why I mentioned him before as like a random guy because I was like just looking at that leaderboard before uh, for players born in Germany. So that is now two Glenn Hubbard references in one podcast. But yeah. Uh, I think by the end of the year or at the very latest early next year, Max Kepler will probably take over number one on that list. It sure seems like it. That is our podcast for this week. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, please leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.